15. And what we saw, if you weren't here, in 1 Samuel 15 was basically the continual failings of King Saul. And I would say his ministry, he was the king. But if you were in the land of Israel where God was your God, the true God, if you had any type of leadership position, you were in ministry. And he started to fail. And the problem was that he wasn't taking any personal responsibility for his failings. And you know, when we get into a place like that, we become self-deceived. And we start a downward spiral. And this is where King Saul was. Now, tonight we're going to see that God removes his spirit from King Saul. However, there's another man, David, who God imparts his spirit to. He endows with his Holy Spirit. And I think that there's really one word that separates the two men. And that one word is desire. And as we go through this, we can look at our own lives, no matter what stage in our walk we are with the Lord, and we can see, do we have the desire for the things of God? Jesus said, the Father will give you as much of the Holy Spirit as you ask for. Many don't ask. Many ask amiss. And God is not going to hang out where he's not wanted. And we'll see that in the life of King Saul. So starting with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now, I tell you the truth. Any unbeliever can come up to me. They could have drug problems, alcohol problems. They could, have, they could be in all kinds of vice. And you know what? I just want to convince them that God loves them and bring them to the cross. You know, we, we, want, the, we want those people to come into the church. We want them to hear how much God loves them. However, when someone is a believer for a certain amount of time, endowed with the Holy Spirit, there's certain behaviors that have to be dealt with. See, there's a difference. It's really a double standard. Because the one who doesn't know the Lord is spiritually ignorant. They don't know God. And we're trying to show them the truth. However, you can see this with Saul. And we can also see this with some in the church. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that there are some that have to be isolated for a while because of persistent sin that they're trying to spread throughout the church. How can I minister that, to that person I've heard? The answer is you can let them go and you can cut them off so that this, the flesh can be destroyed and the spirit saved in the day of judgment so they can avoid hellfire. That's in 1 Corinthians 5. So when we look at Saul, the last thing that King Saul needed was an audience. And God was saying to Samuel, leave him alone right now. He's in sin. He needs to deal with himself. He needs to get right. Don't worry about him. Move on. Jesus said, well, I will say this too, that um, if God shelves a person, who are we to argue with God and say, no, I want to unshelf that person. I want to interject myself into that situation. And the good thing was Samuel was a great man of God. And when God corrected him, he very quickly corrected his actions and started doing what the Lord had called him to do. This is interesting. It says, how long will you mourn? Now, in the Hebrew, that word means mourn as if the person was dead. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Jesus said, for those who are um, spiritually dead, let them bury the physical dead, because they're already dead. They're in the same boat, and they don't even realize it. Right? King Saul was headed towards that path. 
And the truth is, if God imparts gifts to us and talents, and God loves us, and God calls us to do things, and we thumb our nose at him and say, no way, then we're headed down that path. We might as well be dead. He says to Samuel, fill your horn with oil. Now, horn in the Hebrew, I looked this up. Um, if you ever see those old pictures and paintings, a person would carry what looked like a, a, a bull's horn or something across them, and they would actually take the horn of a dead animal and hollow it out and fill it and use it as sort of like a flask. So fill your horn with oil and go. Go to Jesse. Change the channel, Samuel, right? Focus on those that are still following the Lord. God says, go anoint a new king. And what I love about this is, you know, we can, if we come up a few thousand years and we look at our situation and put ourselves in Samuel's shoes, it kind of reminds me of a person who's just kind of sitting around at house, moping around, maybe thumbing through the channels on the TV, and they're really bummed out. And God says, change the channel. See, in our cloudy, gloomy day, God always has a sunny day. And when we understand how he was supposed to go to David, and, and anoint him as the king, it was much bigger than anybody ever expected. You know, 2 Samuel 7, when we get to it, shows us that uh, through Jesse, through David's bloodline, the Messiah was going to be born. And we have our Jesus because of that. So I like the way he, he kind of picks up Samuel and gets him, puts a spring back in his step. Now, oil was a type of the Holy Spirit, and we'll see later that the Holy Spirit does rest on, on David. Verses 2 and 3. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Very interesting, because we look at Samuel and we admire him. As he gets older, he gets maybe a little crustier, but he certainly becomes tough. And he becomes fearless. However, here he has a moment of fear. What I love about the people that God uses is they're not perfect. This man that we admire so much had a moment of fear. Well, King Saul will kill me. But God's talking to him. And if God says to do something, he'll fix that. But God makes a provision for him out of, out of mercy. He shows him grace. But again, he, it, we see that Samuel had a moment. And he was human. And that's a good thing. Because there's hope for us. Now, I want to read Psalm 23, just two verses. Psalm 23, a psalm of David, ironically, verses 4 and 5. And this just goes to show us that no matter what the situation is, that God has our back. Do you realize that today, tonight? Verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. I, I don't know about you, but when I read that, especially the one about the table prepared, there's so much in here. I mean, God even knows how our minds work. God knows how our, our, our personalities, how we interact, how we deal with the most simple things, like even eating a meal. My picture is David sitting at a table. And there's meat, and there's drink, and there's bread. And within five feet, his enemies are all around him with crossbows and swords and javelins. 
And he says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have anxiety, I can't eat. <laughs> you know, your stomach is, and all it does is it makes you burp and stuff because you're, you're so nervous that you, you can't digest the food properly. So <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because we've all been there. Um, mental note, don't eat when I'm stressed. But the truth is that if we really trust God, we can have that situation where they're all lined up to get you. And God says, just eat, enjoy, you know? So I love that. I love that about the, the presence of God and the trust in God. And Romans 8.31 says that if God is with us, who can be? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Amen. Now, the truth is we all have different levels of trusting God, sometimes depending on where our walk is. And even if we're a mature believer, we also have moments of not trusting God. If we're honest with ourselves... And we could all benefit to learn to trust God a little bit more, can't we? What I also notice in here is that God has a solution to any problem or any obstacle in our lives. We've seen this with any of the men or the ladies that God has used. He always had a solution to their problems, right? So much we can get out of this, you know? Some are so afraid to read the Old Testament, but there's so many types in here. There's so many things that we can learn, right? Verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now you might be wondering, why were the elders nervous that Samuel was coming? The elders, well... Again, if you're any leader in the children of Israel, in Israel at the time, there's a spiritual element to that. Uh, we know that Samuel was a good man, he was a godly man, and the elders should have been godly men. However, they trembled. Sometimes Samuel, well, Samuel did carry the, the authority of the Lord. He was well respected. And sometimes he carried the judgment of the Lord. So they were concerned. So you're coming into our town. Is this a good thing or are we in trouble? What does God have to say? The people also knew that the relationship between the prophet now at this point and the king was tenuous. So here they have a situation where Samuel comes in. He has the authority of God. Remember the last time we saw the storm? He just calls down the storm and God grants it. The people are fearing and they're trembling. So they knew that Samuel carried that authority. But at the same time, if Saul found out, well, the king in those days, there was no Congress. If he wanted to take your head off, he would just do it. So they, had, they were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, and they, this, the relationship was difficult. But the truth is that even sometimes just the mere presence of a godly person causes an, an uneasiness in others. And you'll notice that. Maybe you're at a venue where, um, you know, you're really walking with the Lord, you, and you're at a venue, and, and others are kind of uneasy around you because they know what you stand for. So we can see that in here. Now, fear can be a healthy thing. It can keep us from doing dumb things. But too much fear, especially in a believer's life, can be unattractive. I will tell you that the world is not attracted to the church when there's fear. And it, it's, it's the truth. When the world is looking at a believer, they're looking for stability. They're looking for something. Why would I want to join that if your life is fraught with fear? Right? So fear can be a good thing, but fear can also be a bad thing. And if we fear too much, it shows that we don't trust the Lord. And the two of them are pretty much mutually exclusive. 
If we're filled with fear, we don't understand the love of God and we don't trust God. When we really learn to trust God and we understand how much he loves us, the fear starts to go away. That, that's, that's clear in the scripture. That's a maxim there. So Bethlehem. He goes down to Bethlehem, and Bethlehem in the Hebrew means the house of bread. The truth is, God always feeds his people. But even more importantly than that, the Messiah, Jesus, was born in Bethlehem. And not only did he feed them physically, but he fed them spiritually. So Samuel says to the elders, sanctify yourself. Now understand this, that we don't get a lot of this, and we can look in the Old Testament, and and there's a prescription in a sense. So uh, if you are going to sacrifice to the Lord, there were things you had to do. There were certain type of washings. There was certain type of the way that you presented the sacrifice. Sanctify. Make yourself more holy. Make yourself set apart. We're going to go into the presence of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I believe that in the church today, we're losing reverence for God. I think if we start to read about the saints 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they really reverence God. I think sometimes we take advantage of the fact that he can be so close to us and we can have a relationship, but sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes when we're too close and we take people for granted, there's a lack of reverence. And certainly we don't want that to happen with God. So, hey guys, sanctify yourself. We're going to go before the Lord. We're going to present this sacrifice. We're going to fellowship with God. You need to be right. Verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab. So this is the, I believe, the oldest son of Jesse, the first son that's presented. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Boy, this is one of my favorite scriptures. I see a lot of head shaking. There are just, the Old Testament's huge. And there's a handful of these, these pithy verses that just blow me away. And this is one of them. Because we live in a society that's all about appearances. And when we go into God's word, we say, no, you don't have to be like that. How much stress, especially for the, the young section in the front. Hey, shout out. Uh, and there. <laughs> Right? It's the appearances. And there's pressure put on those who are forming their personalities, forming and becoming adults. And they see all the media, and this is what you should look like. Says who? God sees the heart. Right? That's what he looks at. That's what he finds beautiful in us, is what's inside. It's deeper. Was it beauty is skin deep? But the truth is, it's deeper than skin deep, according to God. So man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Now, Samuel sees the kingly-looking Eliab. Don't look at his stature, don't look at his height, don't look at his good looks. Didn't we just go through this with King Saul? Saul was, was tall, and again, when you, you look at your kings back then, if he was sitting on a horse, and he was even taller, and, and his you know, armor, and, and he's a big man, and uh, that's what people looked at back then. We want our champion to be mighty and our champion to look better than any other champion. And the people got caught up in King Saul's looks. Now, I'll tell you this, that I think Samuel got a little caught up too. And God had to say, Samuel, uh uh-uh, I've refused him. Yeah, but he looks like a king. I look at the heart, Samuel. Okay, let's move on to the next boy. We make those mistakes too with appearances, don't we? That's why this is in the scripture. Even the venerable Samuel, surely Eliab is the one. God says, I refused him. 
Unfortunately, in our society, everyone's looking for an Eliab, aren't they? We look for Eliabs in our elected officials, and we get what we ask for. They speak well, they're handsome, they look good, they got a little spring in their step, a little charisma, and our society votes for them. And then they get in and look at our country, it's a mess. You know, they can't even figure all these guys in Washington's, guys, ladies, suits, you know, appearances. What are they doing to our country? $14 trillion in debt? That's crazy. You know, we only take in $2 trillion a year? That's a problem. We have a lot of Eliabs in, in, in Hollywood. A lot of our youth are looking at the Eliabs in sports circles. Oh, look at these sports figures. You know, oh, I, I, that, that, I'm not a real big sports guy, but, so I can't, I can't even name any names. But baseball players, football players, I hear it. You know, they, it's almost as if they wouldn't know you if you bumped into them. But you, you kind of worship these people, these Eliabs. Humility isn't attractive to our society, but it's attractive to God. Okay? Sometimes we mistakenly choose Eliabs in ministry because they have talent, because they have charisma, but where's the heart? And we make mistakes in ministry at times by choosing Eliabs in ministry. Right? Not saying Eliab was a bad guy, but God didn't choose him. But others looked at his appearance. Even the prophet got caught up in this a little bit. I can tell you that there are even some branches of uh, churches that are all about looks. And they encourage the guys and the gals to look, for lack of a better word, hot. Because it will attract more people into the church. Eliab's in ministry. Problematic. I'll tell you this. After seven years of ministry, give me some humble guys and gals over prima donnas any day. Because the prima donnas are a lot of work. (laughs) It's the truth. It really is. Now... Let's take this and go in the opposite direction, right? God looks at the heart. We judge by appearance. You bring two people up here, a guy with uh, leather chaps and tattooed up and a beard and and earrings and, you know, a biker-looking guy, and you pick somebody else and you bring them up there and they're dressed very nice, maybe a mother of three. Do we make judgments? Sure we do. Sure we do. Who do we want watching our kids? Probably that one. Then that one because we look at the outward appearance. Now, I'll go in the other direction and say someone who's the opposite of the stately, handsome, um, whatever type of figure, and they have to be disciplined in the church. The pastor has to discipline them. Well, they may make the say, well, maybe the pastor's being a bully. How could you, that sweet little old lady or that, that person, you know, because we make a judgment. They look a certain way, they must be innocent without sin. We're all sinners, right? Those are the ones that I hate disciplining, because when it gets out, it's bad PR. You know, you must be picking on that person. They're not a sinner, you know? So this is, this is what we do, unfortunately. Um, Christians can be clueless when they're not looking at the, what, what the whole picture and they're just looking at outward appearances. The Lord doesn't see as man sees. I want to read to you Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. You really want to make a good judgment? You really want to make a good decision? Follow this. Hebrews 4.12. And this has to be our basis. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's the word of God is where it's at. That's our foundation. That's our scalpel. That's our um, you know, barometer. It's all those things. Verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, 
but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is what's going to do it. Just like when, you know, it reminds me when I read the scripture, the word of God, it's like a sword. Well, he's not talking about a literal sword. It's a spiritual, it's a figurative. But it reminds me is if you go to the butcher and they have this really sharp cleaver, when it comes down, one shot, it takes the sinews and the muscle and the joints and it starts to cut those pieces up. And you look at it and it's, it's a perfect cut, right? It's like a, a butcher's knife. The word of God will cut through all the nonsense, all the facades, all the appearances, all the smokescreen, all the spin, all the eloquence. God's word cuts right through it. And all creatures are naked in its sight. We don't even have clothes. You know, there's nothing that we can put over ourselves to shield ourselves from his eyes. He sees everything. So the word of God, I just want to just encourage you there. That's what we need to be using. Again, our culture is all about appearances. And tragically, that stuff has found its way into the church. You find me any pagan and decadent society, and I'll find you the church that has some elements and influences that get in there from that. That's a problem. Verse 8. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chose this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. It almost looks like, you know, we're running out of options here, Lord. I mean, how, much, how many kids could this guy have? You know, we're getting pretty low here on the, on the sun meter. Uh, but sometimes in life, if we don't wait for God, we make poor choices. If we, if we say, okay, it's not Eliab, oh, it's got to be Shema. It's got to be Abinadab, because I'm running out of guys here. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, when we don't, wait on the Lord, and wait for his decision, we mess up royally. I can tell you, I've been there. Wait, be patient, pray. The Lord will show it to you. God has a plan as he always does. Verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him here, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So here comes the little shepherd boy. Now, it said, oh, it's still going. So you have David, the shepherd boy. He comes in, and uh, it says he's good-looking. However, we know later on in the story that when he goes to fight Goliath, uh, King Saul says, well, King Saul should have been the one to fight Goliath, but he gives his armor to David and his sword and all his gear. And David, he's clunking around with it. He goes, I can't, I can't use this stuff, right? So what happens is he just goes and gets the slingshot and stone and and he does it without all the equipment. But we know that David didn't have the stature that King Saul had. He was smaller. So here comes the shepherd boy, and God says, he's the one that I want. And you might say, well, what does he have to offer? Again, God just says to be obedient to Samuel. 
So here's a little kid. He's in, he's in the field. His stately brothers are here, and David's kind of like separated in a sense. Uh, he's doing this, this menial task, but God says, this is the one that I want. Daryl, can I move away? Is it working? No? Okay. So, what do we have here? Several principles that we learn in this. Number one, God often honors those in society that everybody else disregards. And that's what I love about him. How many of you remember when I was a kid, there was a cartoon called Underdog? Underdog. Underdog. It's good stuff. You really like it. But Underdog fought for the underdogs, right? He's this little dog, and he had a cape, and it was really a good cartoon. I really liked it. That's probably why I became a police officer, because I wanted to help the little guy out. So the first principle is God often looks at the one that everybody else disregards. Two, there's a principle of God starting out with, with small responsibilities before he gives us big ones. Um, we may need to tend sheep before becoming a leader. And let me tell you something. Being a shepherd, I know at the time of Christ, it was looked down upon because society was evolving to something more uh, eloquent and uh, sophisticated. So if you were a shepherd back in those days, and that's why I find fascinating, is that when God revealed his plans to the shepherd about Jesus being born, he did it again because people looked at them as dirty, scruffy, smelly, hanging out with sheep all day. It wasn't a glorious profession. So... Sometimes we have to do the tedious things and the dirty jobs before God says, you know what, now you're ready. Do you want to be a leader? If I ask you to clean the bathrooms or vacuum the floors, would you do it? If you tell me no, you probably won't be in leadership anymore because that's the truth. Um, you know, we need to start off small and do things and faithful in the little, faithful in the, in the many. The heart of the shepherd. Three, David was busy. God often calls to leadership those that are busy and not sitting on their hands. David was busy. Maybe he didn't like tending sheep. Maybe he had dreams of being something better. But his father said, tend the sheep. So he did it. He was obedient and he was busy. Four, if you want to look at numbers, David was the eighth son. Now, in the Bible, eight is the number of new beginnings. We know that the Lord... We celebrate the Lord's resurrection on really the eighth day, in a sense. New beginnings. He rose from the dead. So good stuff in here. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, I'll read that again, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So this is interesting. One man, yeah, I know. I, a lot of people have that expression. Well, this distressing spirit came from God. We're going to get to that part. One man lost or forfeited the spirit of God, and another man gained the spirit of God. Very interesting. And really what it comes down to, what he said in the beginning, desire. Who welcomed him? And who made it unpalatable for God to be there? Well, David welcomed the spirit of God. And Saul, he, he did it on his own. He was headstrong. He was prideful. And he drove God out. And God said, my spirit's not going to be resting with this guy anymore. It's very sad as you think about it. But the truth is, what would our lifestyle say about whether we would receive more of the Holy Spirit or not? Jesus said, pray for as much of the Holy Spirit as you want, your Father will give you. But is our lifestyle conducive to receiving the Holy Spirit into our home? It's a good question. Jeremiah 29, 13 basically says that if you see God with a whole heart, you'll be found by Him. 
Verse 14, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants, who are before you, to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well, and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who was skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. So God removes again his Holy Spirit from King Saul. And King Saul now can only function in his own strength, which just continues to plummet and the spiral downward. So what about this distressing spirit? Well, when we look in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it does appear that God at times would bless people with his spirit. Again, depending on whether they were going to be obedient or not, whether they were conducive to receiving the spirit of God. And there were times that some of these guys, like Saul and Samuel, that there's a point in Scripture which says he removed his spirit from them. We know what Samuel did, uh, we, what Samson did. He was the other one. It was Saul and Samson. And he, God showed Samson a lot of mercy. But eventually he had to remove his spirit from Samson. Tragic thing. And then the Philistines were able to attack him, bind him, and put his eyes out. But how do we rectify this as coming from the Lord? Well, if we look in the scripture, two instances, one in the Old Testament in Job, and one in the New Testament with Peter, the apostle, where Satan asks permission to sift, to harass, to trouble these men. Now, we know that God is sovereign, and if these evil spirits had their way, we would all be destroyed because they hate us, because we were made in the image of God and they hate God. God will, will allow limited assault uh, to try us for good reasons, to stretch us, to build our character, not to destroy us. They always ask for the worst, and God gives them very little. So, I would just look at this. If we had a GPS on these evil spirits, this distressing spirit, this um, evil spirit, the last place he was at was in, in God's presence to say, can we? Can we bother God's like, okay, let it be done. So, it's not that God is the author of evil, because the scripture is clear that that's not true. But the evil spirits do, and they will ask for you. They will ask to sift you at times. And God will give them limited ability that won't destroy us. Even the temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that the temptation, even when they try to tempt us, will not be so unbearable that we can't find a way out, that God will provide a way out, because he will. So that kind of makes it easier to understand. And the truth is, we are either filled with an evil spirit or we're filled with God's Holy Spirit. If we're believers, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's clear. But the truth is, if the Spirit leaves, there's going to be a spiritual void. Now, I'm just going to touch on Matthew 12, which is a pretty, if you read it, it kind of will give you chills. But it speaks about an evil spirit that leaves a man and looks for dry places to find another host. And the man, in the meantime, is swept clean. So maybe he went to church, maybe he heard about the gospel, and that evil spirit didn't want to be there. But if the man truly hasn't received Christ, the evil spirit will come back with seven others worse than him, and they will make their home in this man, and the last day of this man is worse than the first. It's a creepy, silly portion of scripture, but the truth is, 
there is a spiritual void. It's either going to be filled with God or it's going to be filled, filled with evil. And the sad thing is many people in the world who are doing destructive things don't even realize that they have this, this evil spirit that's either um, harassing them or, or in them or whatever the case may be. There's no neutrality in this war. Understand that. In the spiritual war, there's no neutral territory. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. Right? And that's the truth. Now, I'll say this, that there's many today that are tormented. And you know, you all, as believers, run into somebody who's struggling, could be literally tormented. And what they don't realize is they're being tormented by evil. And the answer is within arm's reach. The answer is the Lord. And they'll fight you, and they'll say no, and you'll see them next week and the week after, and they're still, they're, they're just burdened beyond belief. But that's not what they're looking for. And then you'll see them again next month, and they're still tortured. You would think that, hey, I'll try anything at this point. But remember, it's the evil that's trying to hold on to them and hold on to that territory. They don't want to lose that territory. Some self-medicate with drugs, alcohol, vices. In this particular scripture, King Saul, what made him feel better was the sweet music. But it was only temporary. The hope and the truth is within arm's distance for everybody. Verse 15. Amazingly, King Saul's servants, it doesn't say where they're spiritual, uh, whether they were believers or not, but they perceive that he changes. And it's obvious to them that he, he has this distressing spirit. Okay? Now, let me just make a few points here, because there's a difference between being possessed by the evil spirit, being tormented, or being in the flesh. Okay? Being possessed means that, and there are, look, the guy that Jesus ran into, the demons were speaking through him, and I couldn't even speak. We are a legion, for we are many, 2,000 or more demons that, that Jesus had to release from him and, and send them into the pigs. So there's a possession issue. Uh, there's a tormented issue. Some demons or some evil spirits just torment people. They just, they, they, they're bullies. They find it fun to torment people and torture them. May not be possessing them, but they come back every so often and they harass them. The third is being in the flesh. Now understand, a believer, somebody who's truly born again, cannot be possessed. So let me just give you the good news. <laughs> See, you feel better? <laughs> the good news is a believer cannot, not, not. The Bible says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Once you give your life to Christ, and he seals you with the Holy Spirit, and you start to follow him, um, that's it. You're, 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 off, you're off limits. Even in the, in the New Testament, in Revelation, when all the world's literally going to hell, 144,000 Jews are sealed. They can't even be touched right, by the demons. So, can we be in the flesh, though, as believers? Yes. And that's, that's simple. That's a choice. So, if I wake up tomorrow morning and I, you know, I didn't sleep well, I can be grumpy to my wife and my son and, and kick the leg of the table and just be a jerk. But that doesn't mean I'm possessed. It just means I'm being in the flesh. And it happens sometimes, right? We sometimes succumb and, and we... But it's very easy to just go to the Lord and say, you know, I was a jerk to my family this morning. This morning, Lord, please forgive me. I need to ask for their forgiveness. And then just change the channel. But someone who's possessed can't do that. Understand? Okay. we move on. <laughs> so you happy I explained that? Verses 16 through 18. Um... I wonder where the expression maybe comes from this. M music soothes the savage beast, so this could be where it comes from. But it's really sad because this is what King Saul has to re resort to. Now, he had a choice, though, again. Last few verses. 
Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took the donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed as well and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So, unusual situation. The shepherd boy, um, he's got a good reputation. His father has a good reputation. So when the uh, servants to the king are looking for a way to help the, the king be, be well and have peace, well, they hear about this kid and they say, hey, why don't you come over here and, and help us out here? So he really becomes elevated. So the future king is being used to soothe the current king. Now, could have been that God wanted David to understand and, and have favor found so that he could be in the in the uh, monarchy and, and see day-to-day operations because eventually he was going to be the king, maybe to learn something or a training ground. Uh, what's also neat is that those of us who are filled with the Spirit can often be called upon by somebody. Listen, we all have a friend who maybe is in the world and they're struggling. They're really struggling. And if you're in the Spirit, you can be, God can use you to minister to that person. So you can, you can be a de facto um, representation of God to that person. And maybe they'll come to Christ through your, your example. Oh, I'm, I'm so tormented. How do you have such peace? How do you maintain your balance? How do you, how do you, how do you, well, let me tell you how I, right? It's two. King Saul needed David. And I say that with emphasis. King Saul needed David. And that was very sad because King Saul had the spirit. He had the opportunity to be great things. Remember, when you have God, you have peace. You have contentment. You have joy. And sometimes you just can't explain it. You know, you're just loving the Lord and, and he's ministering to you. And, you know, listen, are we, are we walking on air every day? No. But there is just some time where the Lord just encourages us. He lifts us up. You know, we're... We're playing, we're asking him for things, and it's just a blessing. You know, we're just on cloud nine sometimes. Saul had that ability, but he gave it up. Now, he has to settle for little kibbles, little dog foods. A person to come in and play a part to make him feel better temporarily. Very sad. Very sad. King Saul, when I look at him, uh, when I even look at this, this study, we can look at the scripture in chapter 16 and say, okay, what does it mean? Well, I learned that King Saul was out, David was in. That's the big picture. That's the macrocosmic view of what's going on. But what we shouldn't miss is that one man lost the Spirit of God, and another man was filled with the Spirit and gained the Spirit of God. That is the more important lesson. Now, I'll say this, that when we look at our lives, we can take the unbeliever, person who doesn't know God, the new believer, recently saved, and the mature believer. And there's an application for every one of us. Number one, to the unbeliever. The unbeliever looks at this and says, wow, you mean I can have that? You mean if, if, if I have a relationship with God, these are all the benefits of having a relationship with God? Yes. That's the attraction to somebody 
just being restored fellowship, reconciled to the Lord, pray for them. The person who's a new believer, when you read this, what you see is, sky's the limit about God using you. Sky's the limit what He can do through you. Sky's the limit to how much He can grow you and mature you and how close you can be with Him. I believe it's, it's, the, the scripture is clear. When we ask for the right things and we ask according to His will, God just wants to bless us. So for the new believer, this is exciting. Wow, it can only go up from here. That's right. For the mature believer, for somebody who's been walking for a while, this is also applicable. Now let me tell you something. I had this discussion with another pastor recently. The danger for a pastor, the danger, five, ten years, well, you read the Bible five, six times through and through. You know the word. You can easily in your sleep put a sermon together. And what happens is, this is the danger to the, to the believer who's been walking for a while, that what we can do is it can become a skill. When we evangelize, oh, you just know the scriptures, it becomes a skill. You sit with somebody on a park bench. You're just going through the motions. That's scary. For those of us who've been walking with the Lord for a while, let it not be a skill. Let us be in awe that, the God, that God even uses us. Let us go back to that childlike stage. After three years of walking with Jesus, Jesus rebuked his disciples and said, you're not even getting into the kingdom unless you are converted to be like one of these little kids. So that's the danger for us that have been walking for a while. We can go through the motions and we can leave God behind and we can be good at what we're doing. But eventually, it'll all come crashing down. So, I think that's the, the biggest uh, warning is to the person who's been walking for a while. So, I, as, as we close today, I would just say this should be encouraging to all of us, no matter what stage you are. To the unbeliever, you can have all the blessings of a relationship with God. To the new believer, it only can go up from here. And to the mature believer, that we stay close to God. Let's pray.